Welcome to Jazz Backstory, Episode 8, A Second Slice of the Jazz Life, or A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Becoming a Jazz Musician. One of the numerous realities that aspiring jazz players learn is that gigs where you don't play jazz often pay better than gigs when you do. Thus the phrase, a gig is a gig. For a musician, a job playing any style of music is preferable to waiting tables, Uber driving, or stocking shelves at Walmart. These non-jazz gigs provide us with this episode's vocabulary words. We call them club dates or casuals, depending on what coast you are on. Club dates and casuals can include private parties, ballroom dances, mall openings, and wedding ceremonies and are frequently played by groups of musicians who have never met before, and we call that a pickup band. We wrapped up episode number seven with the statement, Jazz musicians rarely lead boring lives. With that in mind, let's hear what they have to say after this non-commercial message. Our first three stories, in one way or another, are about weddings. First, we'll hear from Woody Herman drummer Ronnie Zito, addressing what occurs when a jazz musician's wedding collides with an important gig. Next up, a second story from Margaret Marion Turner, sharing how she became Marion McPartland in the midst of the World War II European theater. Lastly, Saxophonist and trumpeter Glenn Zatola shares what only can be described as tune displacement at an inopportune time. Yeah, well, well, I met my wife, uh, uh, and, and we got married in '65, and that's when I left Woody's band. And I, I, I she's she's fantastic, you know. I mean, she's like uh, saves my life, you know. Mm. And and uh, uh, I, I had I actually when we got married I, I got to tell you this story if you don't mind uh, uh, I told Woody I was going to get married you you what you what he says <laughs> we're sitting at at a counter in a coffee shop says, you're getting married what are you kidding you know I say I said yeah we're we're getting married but blah blah blah. He says, I said, we got to set a date, you know. And uh, he says, uh, uh, we, we, you, can't, you can't get married on that day. He says, we have a big gig with Tony Bennett. He says, you know, you got to do it. You got to do it. Tony Bennett is, 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 the, is on the concert, you know. And uh, he says, but I'll give you a couple days off before. I'll give you a couple of days off before if, you, if we can get this drummer from Texas or something. I don't know. Um, Paul Guerrero was his name. Yeah, I remember. And uh, so anyway, uh, 
we get married that day and, uh, and we have a reception and uh, now, we, now I got to go to the gig. I got to leave the reception to go to the gig. I still have my jacket on, you know, I think I rented a white jacket. I don't know what it was. And the ja we leave the place it's, and, uh, and my wife has a gown on yet. And she, my, my, we jump in a car and we go to the gig, which is about, was about four, three, four miles away from the reception where we were. And we walk in and uh, I, I just run down the aisle and jump behind the drums, you know. And then Tony introduces my wife. She's sitting in the back, you know. And he, <laughs> Stand up, you know. Oh, they, he made a big deal out of it that we yeah. just, you know. So uh, the pay was pretty decent, and we played all over the country. Um, um, accommodations and travel were not always the best because, you know, there's a war on, and we would get, there would be bombs dropping once in a while. But then I switched and went with regular American USO. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, oh, you ought to join USO. The pay is better and you, you'll meet all these wonderful American guys, stuff like that. And I thought, oh. <laughs> so that's what I did. So then it got to be uh, where they were going to have the invasion. And after the invasion, um, they were sounding people who wanted to go over to France. Of course, I wanted to go and did go with the first group, which was about a month after the invasion, and we went over in a boat and we had um, um, helmets and combat boots and everything the GIs had, except the guns, you know, I felt, felt like MacArthur wading ashore onto uh, Omaha Beach and straggling up the beach and we knew how to put up pup tents. And anyway, we went through all these miserably bombed and strafed towns that were just a massive rubble. And we finally arrived in Belgium in a rest area. It was called Eupen. And uh, they had a big band and they had all kinds of stuff going on. And the various shows would come there to rest. So that's how I met Jimmy, because he then became a member of this little, little band. But first they had a big party for him. All the band members and people are saying, Jimmy McPartner's coming, Jimmy McPartner's coming. And I'm going, who? I had, <laughs> I'd heard of Bud Freeman and Sidney Bechet. I hadn't heard of Jimmy yet. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, they had the party in this tent and they were going to have a jam session. And Jimmy always said, told me afterwards, Oh, I saw you across the tent, and I, I knew you wanted to play. And I said to myself, oh, a woman musician, she wants to play, and I know she's going to be terrible. And you were, he said. <laughs> but I, don't th I really wasn't terrible. I think I just didn't know how to play with a big band mm. at that point. You know, I soon learned. Anyway. You guys hit it off pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, yes, we did. And I guess going out every day early in a weapons carrier to entertain the troops and going, uh, maybe we had to perform on a 
flatbed truck or they'd build a stage out of boards or, the, or it would be raining and they'd put a, a tarpaulin over the, over the piano and stuff like that. It wasn't exactly the greatest, but they just loved it and then the, they would wine and dine us. And, oh, it was something. So, you know, there we were. So I think it was a case of propinquity. That's a good word. Like, we were there. And yeah. so uh, the, it just followed on that we would get together. Yes. And of course, I admired Jimmy's playing, and he started to uh, tell me that he liked my harmony. And so uh -huh. one thing led to another. Real harmony. Yeah. <laughs> From a logistical standpoint, it must have been interesting seeing what kind of instrument you were going to deal with every day. From a, you know, what kind of piano were they going to find for me? Well, it's funny because I thought it was going to be terrible. In fact, one of the prerequisites of the job was that you would learn to play accordion in case there were no pianos. Oh, boy, I've never lived this down. But I never had to actually play the accordion because they had these wonderful little, like a GI piano, which was not quite a full keyboard, like a small upright, mm -hmm. painted gray army style. <laughs> and uh, I always got to play on one of those. I never had a problem. And then when we were in Eupen, Jimmy went out to some somebody's house, some people that were had been branded as traitors, and removed the piano and put it on a truck and brought it over to the theater for me. And this was like, oh, he went out and got a piano for me. Oh, no. <laughs> what a nice gesture. That's yeah, great. so that sort of, that sort of um, fixed the deal right there. Yeah. <laughs> so we got married over there in Aachen, Germany. Here's a question. Yeah. I, I got to warn you, this hardly ever works. <laughs> wow, okay. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Do, do you remember your worst gig ever? Yeah, I do. Instantly. I was playing a wedding in Long Island, and I play, the, the bride walks in, and I'm playing like really with affirmative, the bridal march. And I noticed that the bridal party was the wedding, the groom and the bride were kind of looking at me while I was playing, but I'm playing this thing with authority. After I got done, the band leader comes up and says, my God, Glenn, do you realize you played happy birthday? <laughs> I played bum, 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 Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Played it with such authority, they just kept walking, you know, looking at me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. I think Ronnie Zito's bride, Patricia Graw, should be acknowledged as the ultimate good sport for agreeing to share her wedding day with Tony Bennett and Woody Herman. Actually, that's not bad company. Marion McPartland was ushered into the American jazz scene by Jimmy, eventually becoming the more recognizable name of the couple. And perhaps you're wondering how a seasoned pro could confuse Happy Birthday with a wedding march. Well, keep in mind that Glenzatola was not reading music, but playing a long-ago memorized tune. And check it out. Da-da-da-da-dee-dum. 
da, 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 da. They, they both start on the fifth tone of the scale and head up to one, and they're both happy occasion ceremonial melodies. I can sympathize with Glenn. My own tune displacement occurred on a solo keyboard gig, an 80th birthday party in the rec room of a local synagogue. As the party warmed up, a request was made for Hava Nagila. Now, I've played Hava Nagila plenty of times. You know, very distinctive. But instead, after confirming that, sure, I know that tune, I launched into this. Ouch. If I had kept my wits about me, I might have segued into a rather spontaneous melody coming out like the Tarantella Nagila, but I clearly did not have my wits about me. But all these years later, it makes for a podcastable anecdote. Let's expand on a gig is a gig. Jazz musicians who are devoted to their art can cite any number of reasons to pass on a club date. I don't play rock and roll. The club has a lousy piano. I don't dig the vibe in that joint. But for practical reasons, the majority of musicians accept the gig, pocket the bread, realizing that a singular devotion to an art form may not pay the bills. Our jazz tales continue with pianist Jay McShann and saxophonist Charles Davis, who speak about the pitfalls and particular demands of performing in funky nightclubs. We'll also hear from Frank Strazeri, who describes his unexpected good fortune while filling the piano chair for a rather well-known singer. I bet you had to plan some bad pianos over the years. Oh, we've had some awful pianos. I know I used to... <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I get to the pianos, and pianos be so bad I'd get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd get full of that mess, you know. Yeah. I said, "Well, no, we ain't gonna have no piano tonight." I says, "I says, Brown, you, you can't." I said, "Ain't gonna be no piano tonight. You gonna have to sing with the horns." <laughs> oh. And, and some of the pianos, you know, you'd have to tune. Tune like we used to tune up with A. Sometimes you might be tuning up with C above A, or uh, maybe F below A. You know. Now that's how far they were out of tune. Some oh. of them. And, uh, and a lot of times, if the band was playing in A flat, I'd probably be playing in B flat or B natural. So then that that meant that I was gonna get a drunk on that night. <laughs> that's I had my excuse. I had an excuse already yep. made out. Yeah, I'd get full of that mess, cut out, and go 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 back to the hotel by eleven o'clock. Did you ever do much uh, rhythm and blues playing in your career? Yeah, well, Clarence Henry was rhythm and blues. Yeah, I think. Clarence Henry. Uh, <clears throat> I played with quite a few uh, rhythm and blues uh, during the course of my career. Coming up. 
you ever feel you had to really do that honking honking tenor sax thing? Is well, it? that was a part of growing up. Yeah, there was a lot of honkers. John Coltrane yeah. had to honk. Yeah, <clears throat> a lot of people had to honk. That was that was uh, the tradition: honking and walking the bar. Right. Yeah. And sometimes you were forced to do it. You know, some, sometimes you were forced to do it at gunpoint. So. Like, yeah, especially in Chicago, sometimes people put a gun out of you couldn't, because they knew the solos, so you couldn't fool them. They knew the solos? The audience knew the solos. Uh -huh. You know, they paid that much attention to the record. They hit records, everybody knew the solos. So uh, I know this happened to quite a few different people. That they wanted to hear what was. They wanted to hear what was on the record. You could, if you didn't know it, then you had to go home and learn it. <laughs> you know, you couldn't fool them. You know, when people wanted to hear flying home. They wanted to hear the solo. Wow. They didn't want any. They didn't want you to. You know, if you couldn't play, then you'd get off of that. That's some kind of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> they don't yeah. teach that in school, do they? No, 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 no. They don't teach you that. And they want you to walk the bar, they want you to walk the bar. You couldn't say that wasn't in your contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to walk the bar, it's time to walk the bar. They wanted to see, and that's another thing, people wanted to see a show. Yeah. You know, it's show time, and you had to go out, come out and put on the show. You couldn't sit around and, and, and be that cool that you couldn't put on the show. Uh -huh. so, but that's not my thing. Wow. So on showtime, get up and put on the show. Yeah. <clears throat> you want to get paid, you better do it. Yeah. You may do it and don't get paid. <laughs> 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 you got to put on the show laying on the back and playing saxophone behind the back and anything to get through that. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was, a, that was a, the tradition during that time. You were on a Hawaii special? Yeah. In the first Live World satellite broadcast? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he was a groovy guy. Yeah? He was a nice guy. Every time I... Uh, uh, he and I sort of hit it off. I mean, uh, he's such a, he was such a big star that uh, just being a musician, playing with him, like myself coming in from the outside, uh, you have to know the situation other than his immediate guys that were, had worked with him for years knew him good but a guy like me coming in adding on didn't know him at all and i just make the rehearsals without him all oh, right and you play the music and uh, the conductor so far then you play the music so you don't really get to know the guy until he goes on stage and he sings and you just play the music you know yeah. that you rehearsed right so i still didn't know him so one night he had a party at the, at the hotel and uh, so I go to the party, you know, like all the, all the musicians and their friends or wives and, and were invited to go. So we all go to this huge suite up on top and uh, we're in Oklahoma somewhere. And uh, so all these people, of course, you know, as a, as a huge star, they're all gravitating towards, mm -hmm. him. you know, everybody wants to meet him, what have you, you know. So he's way in the other room and it was with this trumpet player and we were like against the wall over here, you know sort of feeling left out, both of us. So we're just looking around, you know, and he's waiting and he's meeting people. Every time he turns around, hello, and he's meeting this person and then he meets this person and he goes over to another group of people. So uh, 
So I says, John, let's, let's get out of here. I says, I think he's going to come over here, man. I said, what are we going to say to him? So lo and behold, he does come over. And I'm standing there. All of a sudden, he's got his hand in there, and he's a big guy. You know, he's a big guy. And he's looking at him. I says, oh, man, what am I going to what am I going to say with this guy? So I, I, my wife had told me that he was into karate. I says, hey, Elvis, I says, I hear you're into karate, you know? He loved that. That was his bag. That was his groove. He says, oh, really? He says, let me show you some things, man. He says, you wait here, Frank. So he leaves, and everybody's following him to his bedroom, you know, and he's got, there's about three bedrooms up there in this huge suite. So he... I'm by this. I go out in the veranda, out, out in the, we're on the top floor of the hotel, and on the outside of the thing is like, uh, you're outside. So I went out and had a drink, you know. All of a sudden, I can hear everybody saying, "Hey, Frank, Frank, Elvis is looking for you." I said, "This got to be, this has got to be put me on." So anyway, I come in and he's look, he's all dressed up in a karate outfit. He spends the whole night talking to me about karate, and little by little, everybody split. Because he, he, he found his groove. He found someone that could listen to him about his thing. And he, he I, I think he took a liking to me. I, I, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I know I did. I liked him. He was a groovy guy. I thought he was a groovy guy, a real mm -hmm. down-home guy. Yeah. He wasn't like, uh, he wasn't like a lot of stars that I work with. With, with so that I work with Les Brown, with Bob Hope. I work with a lot of stars and. Uh, uh, you don't, you very seldom ever get in contact with them, you know. But Elvis wasn't that kind of guy. And the next morning, I look under my uh, uh, my door, there's an envelope. And there was 300 bucks in there just to talk to him. Another time I talked to him again, another 300. Another time I talked to him, another 300. Every time I talked to the guy, he gave me 300 bucks. Plus, plus the uh, plus the way we lived, I was getting good bread every single day. I was making good money yeah. because we were doing one-nighters, and staying at the best hotels, and our own plane, our own our own chefs, our own pilots, our own stewardesses, everything. That's it was funny. unbelievable. That's it really funny. was. It was like uh, for a musician to being on the road. It was the best best gig you could possibly get. Mm. I can't think of anything that could have been any better than that. Hmm. Three C-notes just to listen. That's like psychotherapy bread. Some gigs come with perks, I guess. You may recall Eddie Locke's anecdote from episode number three, when Roy Eldridge shocked him out of his uninspired drumming with a fiercely delivered, I'm here. Here's a delicious slice of the jazz life from cornetist Warren Vachet describing his own encounter with the always competitive Roy Eldridge. Then trombonist Benny Powell will follow with a story of two jazz giants who were decidedly non-competitive, the very epitome of jazz class. Where else could a, you know, a 19-year-old C student from New Jersey sit, sit next alongside Vic Dickinson and take a yeah. master class for four years? Yeah. That's the, the great, that's the, probably the most effective way of learning is absorbing that on the spot. Oh yeah, I mean there was there was Vic to work with, and uh, I'd wait until about eleven o'clock because it took Roy just about that long to warm up, <laughs> and then I'd walk into Ryan's and buy a beer, and Roy had the most competitive 
wonderful nature of anyone I'd ever met. Any other trumpet player was a, a call to arms. <laughs> so he'd look down the bar and see the competition in there. Uh-huh. And the roof would go off the joint. And I mean, I get to watch, you get, not only do you get to listen to Roy play, playing is one thing. You get to watch the way guys lead the band, the way they interact with the people, mm-hmm. the way they run the room, because that's essentially what you're doing. You yeah. know, you can't, I never did think that you could stand up on the stage with your eyes closed and yeah. really fully communicate with mm-hmm. people. And in that situation, Roy was absolutely magnificent. You know, he just had everybody engaged and uh-huh. kept them that way and entertained the hell out of them. He couldn't resist a challenge, I guess. Well, he, I mean, he used to make that, but that was... There's another thing that... Uh, another thing I'd like to address is, I mean, Roy was always, always up for a challenge, always would put you in the situation of a challenge. And somehow, when he beat you, you never felt put down. It was an honor. Mm. A quick story is one night, I think we got done at Condon's early. Might have been about one o'clock in the morning. And I was across the street getting into my car to go home. And I see Roy coming out of Ryan's, running across the street. He said, where are you going? And I said, well, they let us out early. I'm going to go home. He says, oh, man, you got to come help me on the last set. All right, Jesus, Roy Eldridge is asking <laughs> yeah. me to come help. Sure, I'll be there. Must have had a neon sign on my forehead that said, sucker. <laughs> I walked into the club, he bought me a drink, we went up to play the last set, Roy calls a tune, we play the first chorus, and he points at me to take the first solo, Mm -hmm. so I played a couple of choruses. And he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, said, came to get me, huh? Picked the trumpet up in his left hand, played five choruses, no note under high C, his right hand in the jacket pocket, swinging it back and forth on two and four. (laughs) <laughs> shot me, dug the hole, put me in the box, put the box in the ground, stomped on the dirt, and looked at me and smiled. And I walked out of there feeling absolutely wonderful. I'd had a lesson. You know? I mean, I couldn't get mad at this guy. Are you kidding? It was a magnificent thing to be. My first impression is how blessed I am to have been a part of that because as I hear it, I think about Freddie Green, I think about Marshall Royal. Uh, that was just the two things that jumped out at me right away because Marshall Royal played lead alto and it was so solid. Then you could hear Freddie Green in the back, you know. Uh, I don't really remember as much from this date as I do the one that we did with Duke Ellington. Oh, there was both a, bands? Yes, it was called Battle Royal. Yeah. I think I was like a, a kid in a candy store. Because I think where I was seated, I was sort of like I was in eyeshot of both Basie and Duke Ellington. And I kept pinching myself. I said, no, you're not here. No, you're going to wake up any minute. And these guys were such statesmen uh, themselves. Because somebody remarked the other night at Lincoln Center on the Duke Ellington thing about that same date. Uh, I think... It ended up with Basie playing a solo on Take the A Train and Duke playing a solo on One O'Clock Jump. But those guys were such, such statesmen, they'd say, well, uh, Mr. Basie, this number just demands your presence. <laughs> and he'd say, 
but no, maestro, I wouldn't dare. Oh, man, those guys were <laughs> Oh, man. And I'm a little kid, you know. I'm looking at these guys, and I don't believe it, you know. But also, I remember um, one of the biggest sensual thrills I've ever gotten. On the end, there's both of these bands playing these huge chords. I think that arrangement was by Jimmy Jones, who used to be a accompanist for... Uh, Sarah Vaughan. I think he had a hand in that. But man, at the end, there's some power cards and uh, Sonny Payne solo. The drummer's playing through all of that. Oh man, if you were in the room, sometimes try it yourself. Go to somewhere in a pretty, pretty enclosed room and turn up the sound. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, it'll just uh, do all sorts of things to yourselves. Uh-huh. It'll rearrange yourselves. <laughs> <I'm telling you. laughs> Now there's an entry for a musician's bucket list, having your cells rearranged by the Count Basie and Duke Ellington orchestras. Let's wrap up with a seemed-like-a-funny-idea-at-the-time story from the celebrated trombonist Bill Watrous. The setting, a rather bizarre late 1970s television show that combined questionable talent with a large circular metal disc. Okay, here's a hard question. Can you think of, um, in all the TV shows or whatever, some of the most uh, ridiculous things you've seen happen on stage or in the band or? Well, I was involved in one of them. Yes. I'll tell you. There was a show on TV years ago called The Gong Show. Mm -hmm. Remember with Chuck Barris? Oh, yes. Well, I, at that time, was fooling around with didgeridoo sounds on my instrument. And I could literally sort of talk syllables and words. And I got so I could recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance, you know, I'm playing, right? I can't do it anymore for some reason. But I was doing something for Milton DeLug, who was the leader. And I did it, and he fell down laughing. He says, you've got to come do that for Chucky. So I go over to NBC, and here's all of these bald-headed people in diapers and strange old ladies and tutus and strangest, absolute most amazing freaks you ever saw. And I went and did this thing for Chuck Barris. Well, Chuck spit out his orange that he was eating. He said, you got to do this. So they rented me a California State Highway Patrolman's uniform. And they gave me a name, Freddie, Frederick Fumducker, Officer Freddie Fumducker, honest to God. And they put me on this show. And what happened was at rehearsal, Joe Howard, the trombone player on the show, didn't know me when I came out, and he got laughing so hard that I couldn't do my bit. Oh, no. And I finally, after rehearsal, I went over to Joe. I said, Joe, it's me. Watch it. Watch it. God, I thought it'd be He says, whatever you do, don't do that on the show. If you can take a tranquilizer or something, do it, because I want to get through this thing, right? So I went out there, and the show was done in scenic downtown Burbank. And it's the home of all of the right-wing extremist groups. And they took offense because they put an American flag on each or either side of me when I went out in my highway patrol uniform and started oh. this thing. Oh. And they started hooting and hollering. And, of course, J.P. Morgan got up and gonged me and got me off of there mercifully. And I luckily got out. They were, hey, you don't like this country? Go back to Russia, you commie pig. I mean, they're yelling at me. I'm on the stage, right? So I took, my wife was in there, and I said, honey, let's 
let's get out of here before this show gets out, because if these people see me, I'm dead meat. We just got out of there with, my, with our skin, you know. Bill Watrous did survive the ordeal and went on to play on numerous recordings, including the one you're hearing in the background. This is the last episode in Season 1 of our Jazz Backstory podcast, and it's time to use the phrase that musicians are fond of. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Sincere thanks go out to the tech team at Hamilton College, to student Jason Lever for assembling the audio puzzles I send, to Romy Bertel for interview transcriptions and sage advice, to James Winner and his tenor sax in episode five, and to bassist Sean Peters and the orchestra in a nutshell. We'll be back soon for season two with tales of life on the road, studio stories, discussions of jazz and race, and marvelous life moments from Jazz Cats. We'll see you on the flip side.